This is the Copyright 2.0 Show. My name's Jonathan Bailey, and I am not an attorney, but I am a copyright blogger at Plagiarism Today, which can be found at plagiarismtoday.com. My name is Evan Sherris, and I am an attorney. The opinions I express, however, are intended to be general commentary and are not legal advice. No attorney-client relationship is formed, nor should any such relationship be implied. If you require legal advice, please consult with an attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction. And hello, everyone, and welcome to the Copyright 2.0 Show, episode number 371. My name is Jonathan Bailey. I am from the website Plagiarism Today, which can be found at plagiarismtoday.com. And joining me, as usual, these days, it is non-legal advice doling attorney, Evan Sherez. Evan, how are you doing? Doing well, John. How are you? Doing fine. Doing good. It's, uh been a busy, busy week. It's haunt season is in full swing now, going to all the haunted houses, building our own. Crazy, crazy times, but a, uh, a ton of fun nonetheless. So, can I get a costume recommendation? What have you been seeing? You know, um, it depends on, on what you're going for uh, this year, honestly. I mean, are you wanting something, you know, cartoony? Are you wanting something borderline or actually probably just straight-up offensive? Because <laughs> um, the, the, the most offensive thing I saw, and this was true, it was in Spirit the other day, they actually had a Caitlyn Jenner costume collection for men. Yeah, that's probably... I don't think I'm going to go the offensive route. I, I don't think I would go that route either. Um you know, honestly, the, the, the most common thing I'm seeing this year in terms of like, costume sales is superhero-themed stuff. And it's everything from, like, the Avengers to Batman. And also the villains are popular, too. A lot of people are going Bane this year, from hmm. which, is, which is interesting. I would have thought that would have played out, but apparently they're still selling a lot of Bane masks. What about Pizza Rat? I have not seen a Pizza Rat costume. I think that didn't have enough lead time for them to make the costume. Well, you know, and if that's the case, here's what you do. Um, go to your local costume shop, hit up the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles section, and get the Splinter costumes. Okay. And they will also have the giant pizza slices, too. So I think you can make Pizza Rat out of the components from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles section. Because it turns out for kids, and for adults, too, TMNT is pretty hot this year. Every costume shop I've been in has a huge selection. I, You know, it, it's, it's like, what year is it when I go into a costume shop sometimes? Right. Well, thank you for the advice. That's why, uh, you know, we go for you for our, our costume needs. But let's jump and, into well, uh, copyright stories that we're going to be going over this week. Why don't you let our listeners know what we're going to be talking about? Well, real fast, I do want to dispense, even though I'm not a lawyer, I would like to dispense one piece of pseudo-legal advice, and I'm pretty sure Evan will back me up on this. Stop posting the Facebook copyright meme. Oh, God. Please You look stupid. Yes. Nothing you post as your status uh, a will override the terms of service that you have already agreed to. B ever constitute a binding contract because you need at least two parties for that. And third of all, the whole thing's a hoax, anyways. Stop it. Stop. So that's free pre-game legal advice on the copyright. Just stop it. Just stop being morons. That that's uh, really. I, I'm so. 
I'm very proud. I only I have a lot of Facebook friends. I only had one who posted it, and I won't be overly critical of her. Um, her situation's a little difficult, but you know, still, stop it. Just stop it, please. But yes, uh, copyright story this week. We're gonna start out talking about Batman. Interestingly, the superhero theme comes full circle already. Um, talking about sentience, monkeys, selfies, and copyrightability, as uh, strange as it's going to be. Uh, then we turn our attention to Pandora, just for a super quick moment, and they get a little bit of a boost. And then a very bizarre case, and I really want your your thoughts on this one, especially. Um, the, the, the video game Heroes Charge. Um, you can continue to purchase it, despite the fact the judge has ruled... Very conclusively, it's almost certainly a copyright infringement. We're coming to that. Um, and then we have another game-oriented um, ordeal, but this one involves a settlement as Magic the Gathering and a quote-unquote clone of it called Hex have settled their differences. And then we have an update on Kim.com and what's going on with him in New Zealand. And finally, we end it in the fashion world as Gucci's nail rings are A, a thing, and B, are being accused of being a copyright infringement. So, yes, fashion and copyright again. Not two, sub, not two words we use a lot in the same sentence, but today we will. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, Batmobile. Batmobile. My well, man, and <laughs> this, is, this is a story. Why don't we uh, jump into the, the background facts of this story? Yeah. So, the defendant <laughs> sells uh, replicable vehicles. Uh, including replica Batmobiles uh, at www.batmobilereplicas.com. <laughs> well, you know, I that, can't fault him for the domain name. That's pretty uh, well on the nose. Let's, let's, let's get this out of the way now that this was intentionally a Batmobile replica. This isn't a car yes. that looks like one, so this isn't kind no. of copyright gone wild. This is someone intentionally evoking uh, Batman and trying to and, kind of make make money off of, uh, you know, people's reverence for Batman. And, sp- and specifically at issue in the case is the two of the more distinctive ones, I would say, the 1960s uh, TV show one with the, uh, like, the UFO-looking thing. I always thought that vehicle was so badass when I was a kid. And then I found out as an adult it had a top speed of 35 miles an hour and felt duped. They <laughs> sped up all the footage in the TV series because it could not go. <laughs> it was, it's actually kind of tragic. So, um, uh... Th- the one at stake here, there was a, a $90,000 car that was sold, and DC Comics brought suit saying, hey, you're you're not authorized to deal in our intellectual property. We own Batman. We own the right to Batman, and we own the right to the Batmobile. You can't do that. Yes. Um, at the district court issued a summary judgment in favor of DC Comics uh, on, in the copyright front, and it was appealed, and the appeals court uh, affirmed that ruling has said that the Batmobile is sufficiently distinctive to be deemed a character and that replicas infringe that copyright. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about some of the intricate, more intricate parts of copyright law, which is that it's not only the story as a whole that's protected. There are parts within that story that are protected. And that includes characters. So at what point does something become a character? And that was kind of what they were talking about here is that is the Batmobile a character? It, it's not sentient. It's changed through the years and it's a car. So is it by itself copyrightable? And the court yeah. found, yes, 
Yes, it is. And and that's one of the things that was interesting about this case was that they went the route of arguing it's a character. I found that to kind of be a, a bizarre kind of metaphysical argument. You Very know, I can strange. I can understand Kit from Knight Rider being a character. That makes sense. Um, he was a car with personality, literally. <laughs> but but the Batmobile seemed to stretch to me. But my, my thought when I saw this as well... We're discussing the line between what is a useful article, you know, i.e. a car, versus a sculpture or an embellishment upon it that is not useful. It's what it felt like to me. And with this 1960s era Batmobile, you certainly have a lot of room for arguing that there are components of it that are more sculptural than useful article. I don't know if I agree there. I mean, first of all, it's a fictional okay. item. Oh, yeah. So it's... So, so we're not talking um, about the car itself or in any car or any attributes of a car um, being the property of, you know, DC Comics. Yeah. If, you know, someone wants to put a jet engine into their car, DC Comics won't be able to stop them through copyright. So, However, I sincerely hope other government agencies can step in. Huh. <laughs> I would sincerely hope. So... I think I'm with you on the, this is kind of a strange avenue. I would have thought that you could kind of just stop them by arguing that this is an unauthorized derivative work. You know, you've gone into the yeah, world of Batman and, and created something that is uh, unauthorized, but they, they kind of went straight for reproduction here, that you've reproduced the Batmobile, which is a character that we own. So character law... Generally, it's you know it's different in every circuit, but it says that characters with distinctive traits and attributes that are sufficiently fleshed out are protectable. Mm-hmm. So that kind of tries to balance the lines between stock characters, you know, Macho Cop and Soldier Man, and you know any other you know fairly generic character which you can't generic change. Bond villain one hundred and one. Yes, or... <laughs> um, yeah. th- those kind of things are, are are pretty much available to be uh, copied at any point. But when it comes to specific characters that have sufficiently fleshed out uh, characteristics, you can. Uh, the Ninth Circuit went over a three-part test. Uh, first of all, the character must have physical and conceptual qualities. Okay. Second of all, the character must be sufficiently delineated as to be recognizable wherever it appears. And three, okay. if it has appeared in various productions, like in Batman over the years, there have been many different but it must display consistent, identifiable character traits and attributes, although it does not need a consistent visual appearance, nor does it need sentience. So the Ninth Circuit kind of put together its three-part test here, which is, uh, which is great because it had not never done this before. It kind of looked at a whole bunch of other cases, a bunch of history behind it, what have other cases done, and kind of put this together. So a really, really good case for law, for law students. Um, so first of all, you know, physical and conceptual qualities, I think that's, you know, pretty easy, pretty easily passed. It has, you know, that black, sleek look. Conceptually, it's supposed to be fast and new and armed, so it kind of passes that easily, you know. And then is it, is it, was it sufficiently delineated as to be recognizable wherever it appears? Well, you know, uh, the court... Uh, the defendant in this case wanted to say that this should be an issue for the for the jury, that this is really a fact question, but that didn't really work out for them. The court felt like it was a mixed issue of law and fact and that it could really 
make the decision here. And what they said is uh, basically they confirmed what the district court said, which was that the Batmobile, among other things, is uh, known by one consistent name that identifies as, as Batman's personal vehicle. That was part of part of it for them. Mm-hmm. And that although some of its physical traits have changed over the years, it always includes high-tech gadgets and weaponry, bat-like motifs, jet black color, and is consistently being depicted as swift, cunning, strong, and elusive. Cunning? Cunning. And is, even, and is even portrayed as a superhero and Batman sidekick, if not an extension Cunning? of Batman's own persona. I think what they're talking about is that, you know, those scenes where Batman's about to, you know, be defeated by the villain and then in some automated fashion, the Batmobile comes in and saves the day. I feel like I've seen that in a few either cartoons or movies. Yeah, it was in the, I know it was in the 89 movie. Um, right. And I'm sure, and honestly, I need to go back and rewatch 1960s TV show, but it, it sounds like something that could have happened there too. So those characteristics, uh, you know, together made the court, you know, who, if you read the case, are clearly fanboys of, of, of Batman because they kind of took every chance they get to be total hams about the fact that they were uh, litigating a, a, you know, a, a Batman case. Um, mm-hmm. They took all those things together and they said, hey, this is, this is enough. And... You know, I think I reached out to you over Twitter, and you know, if any of our listeners want to contribute to this you know, discussion, is that is sentience needed? Well, apparently not. Uh, which is the one thing I think that I am a little sketchy about. I I feel like, you know, the concept of a character is almost inherently sentient. Yeah, but there's I, always I there's always some that. sort of thought or uniqueness or or maybe not sentience, but at least Life, in, in life or sentience, one of one or two, one of well, the two. And, and then if you argue that though, then we have to have an argument of is the Batmobile sentient? Because it does, in some cases, seem to push that line. Well, I think in this case, the the court said no, it's not. It's not. It's okay. not sentient. But that doesn't matter. Uh, and the the defendants were trying to punch home this point. No pun intended. That. Uh, 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 that what about its change in appearance? The, the Batmobile was different every time. It, it never had a consistency. Doesn't you know there have to be some sort of physical consistency? And well, the court said that no. Uh, if the character is, you know, does, does not have to maintain the same physical appearance. AKA James Bond has changed over the years. You know, people are even. Well, discussing... I mean, no, no, no. There's been no other Bond other than Sean Connery. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just got some bad news for you. Um, All right. Into <laughs> there, the whole series. Well, I'm kidding, of course. I, I, but your point, your point remains. <laughs> I, and I'd like to just close on this case by reading a a uh, particular passage from the appeals court decision that uh, you know references the court being a ham, as I mentioned earlier. And it, in introducing the case, it, it said, "In order to prevail on its claim for copyright infringement, DC must prove that it owns a copyright in the Batmobile as it appeared in the 1966 television series." and the 1989 movie, and that the defendant infringed that copyright by creating an authorized replica. To the Batmobile! No. Yep. In the case. That is citable in law reviews. <laughs> you know, someone really should do, like, maybe, like, someone going for their legal doctorate, rather than, like, doing anything, like, serious, if you can get approval for this, do an entire thesis or dissertation on just humor and appeals court decisions. Because appeals courts, and Supreme Court too, tend to 
not, you know what I mean? They, they, they tend to play a lot. District courts also, and I get it, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Obviously, no. if I was the defendant and I'm losing a case and the judge is having fun playing with, you know, Batman uh, and, and Superman and putting funny little quotes, I'm going to be ticked off. But Like, I, I remember there was a ruling some time ago that was written almost entirely in rap lyrics. In I remember reading one about a strip club, but, you know, it said, well, it seems this case has fallen into our laps. <laughs> to find that's that case good, for you for next that's week. a good one that's a good one. Yes. Oh man but yeah you hear all the time it, it seems to be I mean all, all courts do it to some degree but it seems especially at the appellate and supreme court level they like to when, when writing their decisions have really? a little fun from time to time there was another think, part of this case by the way John and it was about uh, one of the other points of the defendant was that they were trying to claim that DC Comics did not actually have ownership of uh, the Batman and the Bat- Batmobile so that was a uh, birth- happy birthday-esque uh, trying to trace the lineage of, of the ownership, but that was kind of boring, and they, they obviously lost yeah. on that point, too, so I didn't feel like mentioning it. But, uh, yeah, that's all. We can move on to the second Peter. most ridiculous yeah, the, story, or most yeah. ridiculous story? I'm going to say most ridiculous story. <clears throat> yeah, this one's pretty silly. But Now, we talked about sort of the, the, the facts of this case and for a while, and it, it, it seemed like it was going to be relegated to the world of, you know, exercises in a law classroom rather than actual litigation for the longest time. Basic situation here is um, a photographer um, by the name of David Slater um, was on a wildlife photography excursion, um, and apparently a, a Macau monkey grabbed the camera from him and took a selfie. Basically, turned the camera around, while he's just screwing around with it, hit the button, and took what can only be described as a perfectly in focus selfie. I, I thought that the photographer actually set it up so that this would happen or, or, or he had set up the tripod and then kind of let the monkeys do what they want yeah. with it yeah i've heard i've heard that i've heard multiple tales of how it happened basically but yeah there is a consensus though that the photographer did some setting up of the camera before the monkey got it so either way there's some agreement upon that um now Various sites, including Wikimedia, which is, of course, a part of Wikipedia, the Wikipedia organization, have used the photo and posted it freely, saying, hey, it's taken by a monkey. Monkeys can't hold copyright. Therefore, this work is essentially in the public domain. There is no copyright affixed to it. Um, the photographer said, hey, wait a minute. I did this and that. I set it up. I took various things. You know, All the monkey did was hit a photo, take, grab the camera and hit a photo, hit the button. You know, what about all of my work leading up to it? Well, it went back and forth, and really nothing came of it until this week, when the uh, PETA, the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, has filed um, a lawsuit seeking a court order that will not only grant the monkey uh, copyright in the photo, but will allow the organization to administer it and claim proceeds from it and then divvy it out as is in the monkey's best interest. I guess. Oh God. Um. Yeah. I. You know. This one befuddles me. I think we have a theme going this this episode, John. <laughs> an, an, and an I think that theme, theme. I think that theme is stop it. <laughs> no, I have the same advice for Peta that I had for anyone posting that Facebook status thing. Stop it. Mm-hmm. Animals can't own copyright. The Constitution applies to humans. I sympathize with your, oh, let's help the monkeys, but 
Newsflash, the photographer himself has pledged proceeds from each sale of this photograph to go to a conservatory, or, and he doesn't have to do that. This is not a big corporation. This is a struggling photographer who went into the wild to photograph animals because he also loves them. He is not wealthy. He has stated on the record that, you know, this money is going so that my daughter can go to college. Um, I will I'm selling prints of these for $5 and I'm going to give two to a conservation effort. This is just exasperating. You know, they have no shot, zero, zilch, no shot of this this ever happening. No. You know, the Copyright Office said that they will not register copyrights to animals. And Peter's opinion is like, well, that's just an opinion. Yeah, that's well, just like that this is, is true. like your opinion, man. That's it's basically <laughs> they pulled they pulled the dude out. They, did. they really did. It, it, while it's true that copyright opinions are not binding, there's, it just doesn't matter. The Constitution <laughs> gives copyright to authors, and only humans can be authors, and I just, you know, I wish they wouldn't waste their money, because they know there's plenty of animal cruelty that still goes on. So... Now, Focus your resources, Peter. We both know that this is an end run around around a much larger issue for Peter. On Peter's side, this is just a run at a larger issue about animal personhood and sort of having animals declared legal entities in some regard. And you know, if animals can hold copyright, you know, then they can have this, and they can, have, you know, what I mean, then these are these protections under the law, and. You know, whether or not you agree with that, copyright is not the venue with which to do this. <laughs> this is not the, not the method to let make me, that argument. Let me say this, John. If this monkey is given copyright to the photo, I will, I will resign from the Bar Association. Okay. I, I, that, <laughs> that I will, you know, You're that confident. I'm that confident. I will, I will, I will resign my my authority to practice law, and then I will go streaking and I will videotape it. Okay. And then no. I will, <laughs> I will I will join the military and fight ISIS. That is how confident I am. Not that that's actually wow. not a noble cause, but I'm just you know I wouldn't be very. Now to say the last one sounds like a noble cause. It is. It is. But then again, after you've you know, resigned from your law practice and ruined your reputation by streaking on camera in front of the world... Might be the only option would, I have left. Might be might be your best option, yeah. So it might I just, literally... Be, I don't know how long a best. ginger Jew will survive in the Middle East, but, well, you know, I'll take my chances. I think the sunburn would get you before ISIS did. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, no. That's my experience with the redheads. Um, can't take them to the beach. Um, but... No. But yeah, no, I I agree with you. No, no chance. I would I'm, I'd be willing to make similar bets. But it's just it's crazy that they're making these arguments. And I love how, like you said, they just gloss over the copyright office's um, opinion. That's just like your opinion, man. That's basically what they said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's their opinion. But you know what? Um, we're ignoring it. We want someone else. We want someone else to rule on it. So it, it's crazy. And I'm honestly. I'm honestly surprised PETA, like you said, is spending the resources to, to take on this fight. Well, Pandora. Um, 
Pandora, as has been for some time, is locked in a bitter royalty struggle um, with all the right holders, basically. Um, though this one uh, deals with record labels and sound recordings, if I, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it does. It involves Merlin. So, yeah, over um, the royalties, they should pay to record labels over sound recordings. Now, very interestingly, we have a compulsory licensing system here in the United States, which basically means... Companies like Pandora can secure the rights to play music, to play the music in this type of capacity, and there's effectively no way a record label can say no. However, what the royalty is has to be determined if they can't agree, you know, the old-fashioned way through a, by a rate court. And right now, there is a rate court dispute going on about specifically about the royalties Pandora will have to pay for the span of 2016 to 2020, so a four-year span. And Pandora is making the argument that a deal it struck with Merlin, Merlin is kind of a conglomerate, uh, an organization representing a bunch of smaller independent labels, the idea being that by coming together, they have greater negotiating power than they would individually, which I'm pretty sure is true. So Merlin struck a deal that many people saw as very favorable to Pandora. The other record labels did not want that um, agreement to be considered in the rate court trial, saying it was a special case, it did not apply, blah, blah, blah. Well, now the U.S. Copyright Office has issued one of those darn opinions that is just like their opinion, man, and has said that, yes, the rate court can and should uh, consider, however, this time it's a little more than their opinion because the rate court actually, I believe, is under the U.S. Copyright Office. Correct me if I'm wrong on that one. Well, I, I, the first thing is that they've just written an opinion that the, the judge should be able to consider the evidence. Yes. That's all that they've said, yeah. The judge should be able to consider it where the other record labels did not want it even considered, entered, or thought about. It doesn't exist, basically. It's irrelevant, as my niece would say. It's irrelevant. So they they have they have said that they're going to be able to uh, consider it. Yeah. And I believe the royalty board reaches its decision late December. So we should hear around then uh, as to uh, the rates that they're going to decide on. And uh, mm -hmm. until then, I, I unfortunately there isn't a really common ground. Well, one thing that that drives me a little crazy about this is this like you said, this one ruling that the judges can consider this bumped up Pandora's stock price almost 6%. Just like instantly. Well, you know, um, it's, it's, it's the, financial, amazing. the financial community is always on the lookout for higher than expected earnings. And if they're able yeah. to what they have to pay for content, which comes to about 46% of their revenues, then their bottom line is going to go up. And that's when you start to in invest, and that's where investors are happy. So it's obviously a big deal, and but it's not confirmed yet. You know, the, the rates could end up higher. We'll see. But it, you know, it's a strong bet to go that to, to really think that. Well, if they had one set of numbers, and now they have a second set of numbers that are lower, you're going to end up somewhere in between. So it's going to help. Yeah, it is going to help Pandora. There's no doubt about that. How much remains to be seen. Okay, this next one has me a little befuddled here. i got to be honest. I read this. I was kind of in disbelief here. 
Right, so I, I understand your befuddlement, and I'm ready to clear it up for you. Why don't you tell us the basics? And I okay, the, the basics of the case is there's a video game, odds are, if you exist on the internet and you're not running ad blocking software, at which point, good on you. Um, you've probably seen ads for it. It's called Heroes Charge. Well, a Shanghai company called Lilith Games claims that Yukul, who makes Heroes Charge, swiped nearly a quarter of a million lines of code from a, a Lilith Games um, product called The Legend of Sword and Tower, which I'm hoping that is a poor translation because that makes zero sense saying that sentence. But anyways, um, they claim that um, Heroes Charge is significantly similar to their game and obviously has a lot of overlapping code. Ukul went on to argue that... Um, Sure, they copied the code, but and but but then okay, backtrack. The issue right now centers around an injunction, and whether or not an injunction is reasonable at this stage. Now, the judge seems to agree that the case is that the two works are substantially similar. That Lilith will have little trouble proving ownership, similarity, access, all that jazz. Meaning they've pretty much got a copyright infringement lined up like a perfect pool shot. But the judge declined to give an injunction saying that there is no irreparable harm here and that basically there's nothing that they can't resolve through damages later. Right. So that's the key here. So they have a very strong case for one of the elements of a preliminary injunction or a temporary restraining order, which is that there is a likelihood of success on the merits of the case. Okay. So the judge finds that, as you mentioned, there is a pretty cut-and-dry copyright case here. However, a TRO, or a temporary restraining order, or a preliminary injunction is, a, is an equitable remedy. That means that it's really in the hands of the judge to look at the balance of equities, what is most fair, etc. And the other thing is that Equitable remedies are relevant mm -hmm. the legal remedies are inadequate. So the judge has looked at the facts here and determined that the legal remedies, a.k.a. damages upon completion of a, a successful lawsuit, or, are sufficient. Yeah. And therefore, he doesn't want to issue this injunction. Because, well, maybe if they show that that wasn't the case, even though it seems like the chance or low of this defendant getting off, well, then the harm would be really, really significant. Or maybe there's a public interest factor here where the public will be at harm, although off the top of my head, I can't really think of what that would be considering it's the scale of the video game. Yeah. But or maybe the judge is just a huge Heroes Charge fan. Maybe, and, uh, maybe he wants his DLC, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. the, the main point, though, here is that the legal remedy will be sufficient. You're going to be able to do an accounting, to get an accounting of, the, of this company's sales, and get the money, get all their profits, and that's enough. And therefore, I don't want to issue an injunction because injunctions are very dangerous. They're very difficult to enforce, and they set a generally tough precedent. So when they can, judges try not to issue TROs or injunctions. And that's simply what we have here. Yeah. 
And it, it's bizarre because, like I said, the judge seems to indicate that Lilith has every advantage in this lawsuit moving forward. Right. And Yukul has said that uh, a preliminary injunction would not make sense anyway because they've already rewritten the code in a new language, and therefore none of that infringing code is there. Of course, you can infringe software, and especially games, without actually copying code. That doesn't necessarily mean there's no infringement in the latest version. Because, you know, there's artwork, there's other sounds, there's other elements, and we can even get into arguments about the copyrightability of certain gameplay elements and UI elements and so on and so exactly. forth. Exactly. Copyright we, is, only, is, not, is not restricted to the source code. You yeah, exactly. You multiple levels of copyright, and this is one of these areas that I actually struggled with as a, as a law student. And I remember reading a, a famous World Warcraft case about there being three levels, one being in the oh, code, and then one being what you see, and then one, one being like what uh, a step in between. Uh, obviously, you can tell I'm, I still don't have a great grasp of this. You know, I, I, are you talking about the one that involved the bot, the World of Warcraft bots? Yeah, that's. that's oh that's, god, that was a mess. That I remember case that. I did oh my not, god, I did not enjoy that case in law school. Um, <laughs> oh, I did not enjoy covering that on the copyright 2.0 show. I, I think it's that I, I played a ton of World of Warcraft, you know, as uh, as a as a teenager. So I was so stoked. I'm like, wow, this is going to combine the two things. Yeah, love, uh, video games, copyright, and then I didn't understand a thing my first, you know, read through. So. <laughs> Yeah, it was a very, very, very convoluted case. And I remember it involved, like, server, in-between servers, and this and that. Oh, it got so such so messy. Oh, man, it was a crazy case. I remember that very well. But, yeah, it, it, it's, it's interesting the judge felt that way. But, you know, like you said, restraining order not issued. Now, given how clear-cut this case appears to be and that the judge is basically tapping on the glass here a little bit, I expect the two sides will be heading toward a settlement. <laughs> well, because it seems like every every uh, motivation is there. It would seem, but maybe not. Who knows? It does seem that way. So we'll keep our eyes open. Although one of them is out of Asia and one of them is out of the U.S., so you know it gets tricky there. Um, in terms well, the of motivation to settle, but I can't really speak to the specifics of these two. But I have seen a lot of international disputes go basically all the way to the finish line and then all of a sudden the foreign company just kind of vanishes. Well, in this one, the plaintiff is the foreign company, though, so... Oh, that's right. That's right. The plaintiff is... The... Okay, so I think, uh, you know what, I whatever I just said is not relevant and we can move on. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll talk about another uh, card <coughs> game one. This one involves Magic the Gathering, a game I actually played a fair amount of at one point. <laughs> yeah, and... I also played at one point... <laughs> Not anymore. Totally, totally such a nerdy thing would not, would not do it. Yeah, I, uh, I, I did play Magic the Gathering in college. It's so a fabulous we, game. It, it really is a fabulous game. It's very well designed, very well balanced, and they've done a great job keeping it interesting, keeping it alive. I got out of it back in, I think, like 2000, 2001 in that time frame, so about 15 years ago. But I know people who love it and play it today, and they tell me and explain what's going on and how it's evolving. It's very interesting. A Wizards on the Coast has kept this alive for, for, for it's been around longer than many of the people playing it. You know, right, it that's not only alive. I've, I've read, I've, I've read a few figures. I've watched some documentaries. It's the biggest it's ever been. It's millions and millions and millions of concerned with this potential copyright and uh, issue and this, this copycat and why they sued. Yeah, a company named Cryptozoic, I'm trusting I'm saying that right, created a game called Hex Shards of Fate, which actually sounds like a pretty cool title, I'm not going to lie. Um, but 
Wizards of the Coast sued, claiming it was basically a clone of Magic the Gathering. Uh, looking at both, uh, they, they were both targeting initially, my understanding was the gameplay and some of the art design, too, was supposedly very, very similar. Yeah, they're both um, card games, and the cards and the attributes of those cards, this one, this story gets tough to talk about without going into the details of these games, but the the, the way that the attributes of these cards were laid out, because they, they're not like playing cards, they, they each yeah. have uh, their own attributes of, of whether... Of, and what they do, and they were all placed very similar. So that, that was uh, that was the artistic side of it. Yeah, and the, the quickest way to explain it, I think, is that in Magic the Gathering and, and Hex 2, every card has a cost, what it takes to play it, and it has things it does when it plays and specific times it does it. Right, and they and, both have resources that pay, yes. that pay that cost, and that's a subset of cards that, that are resource cards. Yes. And so that that's just kind of the beginnings of the similarities. And what happened here, John, is that I believe that they settled. They settled. They basically settled, and it's one of those settlements that gives us nothing to talk about because details are completely <coughs> undisclosed, including if any money changed hands or any changes will be made to Hex. Well, the only um, details that are important, I think, are John, it, because it, I did read the press release, and they did mention that a license. Yeah. Yeah. So, obviously, if there's a license, that comes with it an implicit recognition by Hex that they have copied or stolen or whatever word you want to use. They have borrowed some intellectual property from... Uh, yeah, that does. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's also, like I said, we don't know if Hex is paying for this license or what they're paying. You know what I mean? How oh, they're, they're paying. paying. Or what. I'm sure they're paying you something. Bet, but You yeah. can bet they're paying. Okay. Yeah. But the question is, you know... Is it like a tiny fraction of a percent of sales, or is it a big? You know what I mean? We don't know. That's, that's we don't know, and that's the that's the issue here because when we talk about this with like patent licensing, for example, some patents are damned expensive to license, others are very very cheap to license, and so it, and, it, and it really has more to do with how central the uh, patent is to the product you're trying to put out in a lot of cases, and that's the type of issue. We don't know if the uh, issues they agreed were overlapping were very central or very, you know, tertiary to this problem. So, it's, it's interesting, though. It's a very interesting case, and like I said, uh, like I say repeatedly, 90% of litigation, or I, I changed the percentage, but 90% of litigation is negotiation. And you know the whole time they were litigating over the past year, they were negotiating at the same time. <laughs> Behind the scenes, working, trying to hash something. You know, out. I would add a, an extra step. You know, like ninety percent of litigation is leverage for yeah. negotiation. Yeah. Just because of the costs, you know, nobody yeah. wants to spend more money than they have to. That's like nope. the exact opposite of what a business is designed to do. So, every once in a while, you does. have yes, you have an emotional, <laughs> you have an emotional litigation, and that ends up costing both parties' fortune. But most of the time. If a destination can be reached where one party is going to spend less money and still get most of what it wants, it's going to, going to take take the route to get there. Yeah. And I can almost guarantee you whatever license they are paying, it would have been cheaper than long, dragged-out litigation almost certainly. So there you go. Well, Kim.com in New Zealand, we mentioned last time that his um, <clears throat> extradition hearing was underway. The former Megger... Uh, Megger... Megger... No, I'm, uh, all of a sudden I, I turned into 
you know, a southerner here with my accent, but a mega upload, um, mega upload head. He um, was arrested in January 2012. Delays in extradition were legioned. He is now being, he's now having the hearing, and now the uh, Crown, the prosecutors, are laying out their case and saying that it is, quote-unquote, simple fraud. That when you strip away the veneer of everything, Mega Upload was nothing more than a organized crime, organized organiz an organization committed to committing fraud. Yep, uh, fraud and conspiracy to uh, infringe copyright. They say yep. that they have evidence from recorded Skype conversations that have the defendants, including Kim.com, plainly saying, we are going to deliberately uh, you know, introduce this copyright infringing material to our website. Uh, we're going to try to preserve it. And, quote, at some point, a judge will be convinced about how evil we are and then we're in trouble. So, you know, tough to get around yeah. that one. Yeah. You know, do you watch People's Court at all, like those court shows? I mean, have I ever? Yes. How or have I ever? Do I watch actively? Don't. No. Well, People's Court, Judge Mary <coughs> Lillian has an expression that I think Kim.com learned, learned very, very... um very dearly right now and that is say it forget it write it regret it <laughs> he put all of this stuff in skype chats and in recorded form and formats that can be recorded and now it's all coming back to haunt him all of a sudden it seems <laughs> you know this these conversations have just been whispers in a boardroom there's been no evidence of it right i mean he's he's coming here make no mistake about that him.com yeah, yeah. is on his way and I'm not going to stake my bar license on this one. but he's, he's <laughs> Why? It's not like the monkey where you're willing to bet everything? <laughs> no, I'm not that compulsive a gambler. Oh, gosh. But, yeah, he definitely, it, it, it does not look good right now. Now, one interesting thing here is since criminal copyright infringement is not a thing in New Zealand, his extradition hinges upon fraud, money laundering, and the other charges on the ticket. So... Basically speaking, it seems like he is facing, they're trying to, you know, really beef up those elements of the argument in this extradition hearing. Yeah. Um. But I think they, I think this here pretty much cinches it. And of course, he's had, he's, there have been other conversations that have come out, like where he knowingly was giving money to people uploading pirated content, including one guy that received 1,200 takedown notices, and he paid him $50,000 over the course of three years. Knowing that, it's, you know, you see this type of stuff, and it's like, yeah, okay. We get it now. He's not just some guy who ran, you know, your regular run-of-the-mill cyber locker service. He was a guy very deliberately involved in copyright infringement and other illegal activities. It's becoming very clear. The picture is coming into focus. Yeah, if the extradition hearing is on, I think, I believe, another two weeks left in proceedings. On Friday, and yeah, uh, that's all I really have on this story. Yeah, it's gotten there two to three weeks. Obviously, he'll be putting up a defense, but right now, from what the prosecution is presenting, I would say it doesn't look particularly good for him. <laughs> uh, I think, like I like I said, they're 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 coming this way. All right. Well, nail rings. Nail rings. 
That's a thing. Let's a. finish off the, the, this this, this on a weird strong. note. Yes, New York based designer Jules Kim is planning on taking, or I don't know if she's already taken, legal recourse against the And her, I love the name of her company. You just said that she's Jules Kim, like J U, like Jules Verne, basically is her first name. Her company is By Jules, was B I J U L E S. It's like that's actually kind of clever. I'm gonna give you that one. <laughs> well, she she got lucky with her name and her passion. I think you know. Jules. Yeah, very, very, very fortunate. But yeah, but yeah. So, I'm not much. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, you, you go ahead. I'm saying I'm not much of a fashion plate, if anyone hasn't figured that out. No, uh, unfortunately, neither am I. I've got a watch, and then I've got a, a bracelet I got from a lovely Ukrainian uh, woman who's here over the summer. Uh, oh. That's cool. Um, but uh, this company, by Jewels, makes these nail rings. Which are uh, what they sound, they're rings over your fingernail. Right, so basically. I think they're, they they have like a, a faux ring, a faux, a faux nail, so instead of getting like a fake nail, this kind of acts as that nail, but it also acts as a ring that goes around the, the, the front of your finger. Uh, we probably and, sound so stupid Yeah, when I, we're I, trying I, to explain this. this. Well, anyone who has any idea... It, it, with, you know, in fashion, probably shaking. Someone at Gucci is just, you know, oh, yeah. I can't believe these two plebeians. Yeah. <laughs> I bet so, they buy their clothes off the rack. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, someone, yes, we do. Someone over Instagram shared Gucci's new line with her, which look very similar to her. So, she said, she stated, oh, well, while it's such an honor to be knocked off by Gucci, you know, they have all the resources to create something unique, and instead they kind of went back and stole the one item that's iconic of my company. And so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to explore my legal options. You know, this one does get a little tricky. Oh, yes. In terms of what you can actually protect, because it has to be what, you know, ornamental um, and not a useful article. But I don't think maybe on second thought there's much of an so, so, so I at least my initial impression is that she's got. So it you, so yeah, you think this is is not a useful article? No, this is more I, sculptive and like a sculpture in nature. Yeah, a, I would I I would say so, but I'm just I'm having an initial struggle with what you know how close does it have to be? Because obviously, she doesn't own the right to the idea of a nail ring. No. That would be patent, if anything. No, well, neither. You, you know, the, the, yeah. I, I'm looking at these two pictures while I'm trying to form an opinion here. And, you know, they're close, but I don't know if they're that close. So, so I, I don't know if there's, a, uh, if, if there's a substantial similarity issue here. Yeah. I, I, I agree. And we... Fashion and copyright mix so poorly here in the United States, at least, because in, in the United States you do not have copyright over useful articles, basically, and most of fashion, what we think of as fashion, is a use concern useful article. You can't protect the way a shirt is cut or a dress is cut. You can protect, you know, something that would be copyrightable independent of the fashion, like a photo printed onto a shirt is still protected, but. 
Yeah, it, it, it's it's bizarre. This is this goes outside of what one usually thinks of when they think of a um, a useful article. Yeah, you know uh, what? Like, I, I think there pretty much is physical and conceptual separability from the useful article, if there is any useful article to, yeah. to a ring. So beyond that, it becomes a question of, you know, what are the creative elements in each of these rings, and have those been copied exactly? Because, I mean, I think there's a question of access here as to whether her line was popular enough, and then there's a question of, rather than maybe my what my initial thought of, which was the useful article? I think maybe I had more thought of the question of consider it, and we could really focus on this this similarity issue and what is actually protectable expression. Yeah, yeah. It's a very bizarre case. This is not something. Yeah. That you you think would ever think of, especially someone like me that's not fashion oriented. This is crazy. That, hey, the idea of these fingernail rings exist is crazy enough, but then to try and put it in the context of a copyright dispute just it, it hurts my head. Yeah. You know. No, there could be trademark issues here too. Yeah, obviously, yeah, but. Are known for to consumers and that style of dress is now it should only be you know associated to her and that Gucci is, is suing her. Although it's I did I did research earlier that she does have registrations on these on a lot of these items. So, so there's there's a bit there's a copyright of there's there's an opinion of the copyright office which is you know these are protectable. So how would you like to be the guy the copyright office that got this registration? It's like okay, song, song, movie, book, book, fingernail ring. Yeah, I don't know if if they got two two dimensional, you know, printouts of the designs or an actual ring. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, I haven't had the chance to actually look at that, but but that'd be interesting. Yeah. Well, sorry uh, to to finish a little uh, a little weekly there. You know, nah, that's not more, weekly. More for you on this. Well, um, neither of us were going to have a lot. I just thought it was a very bizarre story. You know what? Well, I'd actually like to do some research on this one. Okay, so we can revisit it next week if you want. On, on the protectability of nail rings. Very, very interesting. Yes. Um, like I said, I know nothing about fashion or nail rings, but it is an interesting topic. That brings us to the end of the show. Yes, it does. That's our end for this week. On that note, everyone, um, unless Evan has something... I almost called you Kevin. Unless Evan has something else to add... Uh, I don't. I think we're done. Um, I think I think we're done here as well. Yeah. So my name is Jonathan Bailey. I am from the website Plagiarism Today, which can be found at plagiarismtoday.com and username Plagiarism Today at all the things. Sheris, uh, connect with me on Twitter at Evan Sheris E V A N S H E R S and John. On that note, everyone, thank you very much for joining us, and we will see you guys next week, and we'll circulate a petition then to get Evan a real website, too. So, see you next week. We would like to give a very special thank you to Pit X for contributing the Copyright 2.0 show theme song entitled Me Boo. It is available under the Creative Commons by Attribution License and can be found at ccmixter.org by searching for the word Me Boo. Thank you very much, Pit X. Hey, hey, hey.